What's up, everybody? We are live on the Security Squawk podcast. Welcome to the show. I am your co-host, Brian Horning over at Exact IT. We got Ryan O'Hara from Think Cybersecurity. Arc Solver CEO, Mr. Reginald Andre, and Tech Rescue CEO, Randy Bryan. What's up, gentlemen? Welcome to another show, and we're going live today. So, Randy, I won't be watching the private chat. I'll be watching the comment section. <laughs> Real live, not fake live. Oh, it's all good. We chat about you, so you don't need to watch the private chat. Oh, I know. I can see it afterwards. <laughs> so, today we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff to help you understand how cybersecurity, cyber criminals, ransomware affect your business and affect your lives all that we ask in return is that you share our show, um, share it with your friends and family, share our podcast on the various podcast platforms. Um, but today we are coming to you live on most social media platforms. I think I got us going on Facebook, uh, YouTube. Uh, we also are on LinkedIn right now. Um, I think that's it. Um, but uh, yeah, just share wherever you see us. You can share this post. You can share our um our, our podcast and why we do this and ask you to share it is because a we we volunteer our time and our expertise to bring this to you and b i don't run ads i don't run boring commercials i don't stop the show and tell you about some product or service we just talk shop and let you know the goods so anything you guys want to add to that before we uh kind of run through the topics for today yeah, rate us a five star in, in the Google podcast or Google Podcast and the and the Apple Podcast too. So I'll helps us out. Free as in free beer. Yeah, if you don't understand like why we ask you to do that, because the more you like our stuff and the more you comment on our stuff and share it out, the more the algorithms look at that and say, okay, I'm going to show this to other people, kind of like organically, right? So. And it's not for us. It's to it's to get the word out and, and yeah. help other people. So yeah, we're not trying to make any money off this. Like you know. So we got a major cyber attack on hospital chains. Uh, we have Microsoft Exchange Server being totally exploited left and right by every major hacking group out there. So we're going to get into a little bit, a, a little bit of a discussion about just Microsoft Exchange in general, and is it time to move on from hosting your own email servers? Um, we're also going to talk about some hardware vendors who've had some issues lately and why that could have major implications for cyber defenders and people trying to keep their network secure down the road. Um, there's some cloud services out there that are making hacking easier, and we're going to talk about that. Um, and uh, we're also going to talk about some minor cyber attacks. While they may seem like nuisances, um, we're going to kind of make you aware of some of the impacts that these these kinds of things have have on, you know, your individual lives or, or your business. Um, even minor cyber attacks can cause major disruptions or what appear to be minor cyber attacks um, can cause major disruptions for your business and major problems. And we, and we want to make you aware of these things. So first thing we're going to jump into, we got this major hospital chain that has a ton of hospitals across the country. It seems like um, from what I can read in the article that I have in front of me, um, most of these uh, hospitals are in Nebraska, Iowa, Washington, Texas, and Tennessee, at least the ones that were affected. So um, the name of the hospital conglomerate is Common Spirit Health, which operates more than 700 healthcare sites in over 20 states. Uh, and said in a statement on October 4th that it was managing an IT security issue, which here we go again. Um, obviously, the breach attorneys are involved when you see stuff like that. Um, I mean, literally, we're hearing constantly about there's an IT security issue mm -hmm. or an IT issue that somebody's dealing with. And we're not consistently now, we're not getting the information that it's ransomware for weeks and months later. Um, if you remember, you guys remember on the show, we talked about Ferrari, I think it was last week or the week before, they're still denying that they were hit with ransomware, even though the ransomware group is on the dark web releasing Ferrari data. So, you know, it, it's only a matter of time before Ferrari is gonna have to come out and admit that, you know, they were hit with ransomware. 
Um, we, you know, we know the group that hit them, but they're still denying it left and right. And I think that that's kind of what we're going to see in the future here is again, we're going back into this mode of not sharing information, not letting people know what's happening. Um, and I think that's the, the wrong move. I think it's a major misstep by the cybersecurity community to, to behave in this manner. Yeah, we've uh, talked about trying to destigmatize this for, for several shows and, and we're going in the exact opposite direction. Now we're just flat out denying it and pretending it didn't happen. Yeah, well, I think it's, again, we talk about this kind of, you know, as in, in our business groups that we're all in together. It's We're in a situation where we're not in control, meaning the IT people, the cybersecurity people, when it comes to these incidents a lot, and that's mainly because of cyber insurance. And I try to stress this to as many people as possible. You are no longer in control when you file a cyber insurance claim. This insurance company is in control and the attorney that they assigned to your claim is in control. And, and I think that that's all a result of those two entities, insurance and lawyers, uh, running the show on this stuff. They are not, they don't see things the way that we see them. Um, <clears throat> you know, and, you know, I, I don't know what the right answer is. I just know that in my experience with dealing with cybersecurity, kind of, on, I guess, in, in the uh, underground level, as you would call it, right? Uh, when you're when you're dealing with other people that work in this business, when we're talking in back channels and, you know, sharing information with one another, it makes things a lot easier. Um, and it makes my show a lot easier when I have, you know, meat on the bone to talk about things. When I don't have meat on the bone, we can just speculate based on, you know, repeated behavior patterns that we see coming out of all these attacks. And here we go with, you know, basically them not admitting that they are dealing with a ransomware incident, even though we know that they're dealing with a ransomware incident. Which is so. even worse than it was before, because before they were at least admitting that they were dealing with something and they weren't you know, divulging any details about what it was or anything like that. Now, now we're getting to a point where they're just claiming that it's not actually happening. <clears throat> Anytime you get lawyers involved, they're also thinking about the future and what's going to happen for future repercussions as far as lawsuits and things like that. So um, I really think that they need to open up because this is life and death. You know, this mm -hmm. is people that have surgeries and have appointments. And if they're in some rural area and this is the only hospital in that area, this this can really be um, impacting people. So, and they, so they even mentioned that in the story. They could not do a CT scan on a patient with a, a brain bleed because of this. So. Uh, it's also pointing out that research is starting to show that hospitals under strain from cyber attacks like the one at Common Spirit Health have a higher death rate than yep. places not suffering attacks, which is like, how are they correlating that data? Um, there, if, you, if you click through, there's another article about it. A giant research was done. And the more ransomware attacks there are at a hospital, the higher the death rate. Now, it might be one of those things like there's a correlation between flossing and heart disease and it might be one of those things that people that floss also are more likely to walk or run or go to the gym or something like that and that might be the case here like it may not literally be that ransomware leads literally directly to higher um, death rates it may be that lackadaisical hospitals that overall have lackadaisical policies and processes and don't take care of their cybersecurity have higher death rates which that would be even worse. So moral of the story is if your hospital near you had a had a ransomware, you may want to choose the next hospital over to do something that is somewhat risky. I don't know. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense to me. I mean, how you do one thing is how you do everything, right? So if you're not if you're skimping on cybersecurity or not doing things good around cybersecurity, you're probably not doing things good around your your operations in general. Um, that's kind of how I look at it. Um, so, yeah, but even these, you know, nurses and doctors, they're already overstressed. And now you're telling them that they can't right. use their electronic tools and have to go back to paper and pen and faxing and things like that. Mistakes are going to happen so easily that way. Yep. And, and realistically, this, this story is kind of a copy and paste. I mean, we've probably done a story like this once every month for the last six months. Um, you know, you just you know, substitute the name of the, the healthcare facility and the rest of it's pretty much the same. This keeps hey, happening. Like hundred percent. The thing, the thing that I'm always looking at is, is like, 
K through 12 schools, colleges, and hospitals. I mean, mm -hmm. you have a massive target on your back. Mm -hmm. And the other problem is, is, you know, the way I look at it is these are types of, of institutions or businesses that can't hide like certain other businesses can hide. Like even a big accounting firm, if they're, if their clients don't, you know, run to social media or, or, you know, kind of mention to somebody that, you know, their, their accounting firm or their accountant is, you know, offline because of a cyber attack, probably not going to make the news. But when you have gen the general public can walk into a place and can see that there's something going on, like things are not normal, colleges, schools, hospitals, <clears throat> they're going to have a really hard time keeping this under wraps to where they don't have to say something. And I think that's what we're seeing here with a lot of the information that we're looking at um, in the news is, the, you know, the information that's getting out there is being very controlled. Um, but these are one of those entities where they just have to start saying something because people are walking in trying to get treatment and they can't get it. Um, the same thing with you walk into a school and they can't provide you educational services. Um, it's going to be very evident. It's going to be in your face. And people are going to start saying like, hey, my school can't operate right now. Um, and you don't really have much control of that. So um, you guys have any thoughts on that? I mean, so, I disagree. You're right on. It's uh, yep. very true. And the article even says here, I didn't even see it. It's not unusual for hospitals facing ransomware attack to stay tight-lipped about attacks. It's not unusual now but it was unusual two years ago i mean look remember the uhs attack and i remember them changing their their statement on their website four or five times but the very first one they put out was very blatant and very matter of fact like we're dealing with ransomware at all of our facilities mm -hmm. um and that's kind of what this article is pointing out is like now things are tight-lipped it's hard to get information and i think it i think these reporters are probably realizing it's harder to get information um, the healthcare sector has been reluctant to acknowledge a relationship between cyber attacks and patient health. It's only in the last year or so that these conversations bubbled to the surface, but as cyber attacks on hospitals and healthcare organizations become more and more frequent, the issue becomes impossible to ignore. So the conversation is, is going in an inter interesting direction. And I personally, I believe there is a correlation between companies being tight-lipped about things and then reporters then digging into the deeper into hospitals operations and you know like i said how you do one thing is how you do everything so you're looking at the potential here of investigative journalists doing these investigative reporting on hospitals and them coming out with a bigger black eye or two black eyes because not only do they suck at cybersecurity, but they also suck as a hospital. And, you know, you probably shouldn't go there if your life is on the line. Mm -hmm. Right. As Randy said, like, go somewhere else. <laughs> so anything you guys want to add to that? I mean, huge deal. I don't think hospitals are, are going to slow down anytime soon when it comes to this stuff. Especially not uh, if they're not sharing information. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's brutal. So, well, and also um, the the trend. So, like three, four, five years ago, like you paid the ransom, and you know you didn't really expect to get rehit so much. But I know there's always been a statistic: if you uh, pay the ransom, you are going to get hit. Well, now that number has gotten so high, it's almost guaranteed. If these guys pay the ransom, they're going to turn around and get hit right away. I've been reading lately about about the bad actors. They're there. Maybe maybe they don't come right back, but then they sell access mm -hmm. to someone else who comes right back and hits them. And that's just that's going through the roof now. So this is just a big mess, which which goes back to the was the response done properly in the first place or is the attackers just sitting there waiting for the storm to blow over and then they do it all over again without having to do a whole lot of work. I'm thinking they're just paying the ransom and thinking that's good enough. Mm hmm. <clears throat> Andre, you've been quiet about this subject. Anything no, you want to I add? just, I just worry about what's going to happen in six months when you know there's another article uh, on a Sunday morning saying that you know that ransomware that happened. Now everybody's data is exposed. Everybody's personal records are exposed. So. Mm -hmm. Yep, hundred percent. 
So uh, I'm going to move on here. Um, not a ton of cyber or ransomware attacks that we're hearing about this week. Um, although I do know quite a few that are dealing with something and it's just not in the news yet. And I'm not sure why. Um, Microsoft is, a, is again investigating a report of a new zero day bug abused to hack ex hacked exchange servers um, and this group Lockbit, which we've talked about before, is a very prolific ransomware group. Um, they are using, you know, these vulnerabilities in Microsoft Exchange servers to take over, get admin access to networks, and ultimately do things like deploy ransomware. And we want to talk about this for a little bit because. You know, I think a lot of a lot of companies, especially mid-market companies, are still managing their own exchange servers and still kind of haven't adopted the, the cloud yet, so to speak. Um, and it's really, you know, important for us to highlight, you know, the, the, the vulnerability and the risk that you're taking by running your own exchange servers in 2022. Um, so I guess let's kind of talk about first, like, what's changed okay because i mean 10 years ago everybody had their own exchange server i mean from small businesses all the way up to enterprises you know exchange and admins were in high demand so what's changed in the last seven or ten years to where we've gotten to this point where microsoft exchange servers are constantly being exploited and hacked I can I think mean, of a couple incidents that happened, but go ahead. I mean, the main, I mean, we've talked about this a million times. We talked about it in the green room. I personally think the main issue was the solar, the solar winds hack. It goes back to that because um, a bad actor was able to insert just like this much code into the source code for uh, one of solar winds products, a cybersecurity product or a backup product. I don't remember which one it was, but then that got compiled, signed, got rolled out. It went to um, major cybersecurity companies. It went to defense departments um, and it went to Microsoft. Um, and, and they were able went, uh, from the back door, from the inside, they were able, it appears to leak all kinds of source code for exchange. That's why whenever we've been mentioned this, I almost break my neck shaking my head. I mean, you know, I used to be like a big fan of, yeah, you know, if you want to run exchange, that's cool. You know, I prefer the cloud, but now it's like, you're just, you're dumb if you're still running it because mm -hmm. the source code has been leaked and they're going to find stuff. They're going to keep finding stuff for the, till the end of the world until Microsoft rewrites from scratch. Um, this is going to be uh, a problem. And, and this particular one. So, so this is another example of a copy and paste article. I mean, we, we've done this, this topic several times in the last couple of months as well. But this particular article, uh, the vulnerability that it's talking about is still an undisclosed zero-day vulnerability. So they don't even know what, what the vulnerability is that's being exploited uh, on top of the fact that they're still working on two other vulnerabilities that they don't have patched. So this is now potentially three exposed zero-day vulnerabilities that are on this, this particular platform. So do you think it's just more Microsoft not having the resources or, or as much resources compared to their Office 365 platforms? And that's why this is, you know, a zero day and they can't fix it fast enough? I mean, a lot of it, I think, has to do with the fact that, that you know, the, the same reason that we're seeing so many more vulnerabilities these days is code has gotten so exponentially complicated. Uh, so trying to patch these vulnerabilities without breaking this, the the point of the software in the first place. I mean, look look at the the, the print nightmare vulnerability from last year. Uh, that took them, you know, what a good couple of months to fix that. And and, and their initial recommendation was turn off turn off the print spooler. <laughs> You know, which if you have to print, which most businesses do, that that's not really a good solution. So, you know, they couldn't find a way initially to fix the problem without breaking the thing that it was supposed to do in the first place. So it, it does get complicated. Um, and to that point, though, I, I, I do think that Microsoft also, you know, would prefer people move to the cloud. Um, you know, at this point, you know, it's not really a matter of why are you, yeah. why are you, you know, just 
just do it. Just move. You know, why, what, what's holding you back? What, what reasons can you have for wanting to stick with an on-premises exchange server, um, you know, as opposed to moving to the cloud at this point? And I, I don't know the answer to that. It's been I a mean, I can picture an old school, you know, IT guy that still doesn't trust the cloud or, you know, something like that. Or, or maybe if it is these large enterprises, maybe the migration itself, the cost, maybe that's something that that's holding them back. Yeah. As well. It's been yeah, a real I, pain for 365, though. I've, the, 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 and this is causing everything you guys mentioned is spot on. But like from a from a CEO of a company standpoint, it's not easy to wrap your head around this, right? Because you've had exchange servers in your business for 20 mm -hmm. years, and now we're basically saying, you know, this legit software program could probably will, in today's day and age, cause a problem for you if not soon in the future. And how do you, if you don't understand this stuff, how do you go from, you know, this is how we always did things to the new world that we live in, which is like basically, you know, I don't know. I kind of look at it as like, you got to do everything to erase yourself from the internet. And what I mean by that is zero, kind of like a zero trust approach. Like, mm -hmm. you know, do, to somebody in Europe, to somebody in Asia, to somebody in, in Africa really need to see or get access to or see that my IP address, my publicly facing IP address is out there and is, you know, has something behind it. <clears throat> um, and I think that's where we're getting to is like you really have to control what on the Internet can look at your systems. But by design, exchange servers basically need to be open to everything. Um, in order to receive email from yep. the various places it can be yep. getting it from. So, you know, in one sense, I, I, I agree with you guys. I, 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 you know, and I don't know if that's what you said, but I kind of feel like this is a, a move by Microsoft to force everybody into their cloud. <laughs> like eventually they're going to say like this thing's so screwed up that we're, we're not even going to develop it anymore. We're, we're, we're sunsetting it and everybody's going to run exchange online. Now, I don't know, and we can, I don't want to talk about this too long, but it does bring up the question in my mind, what's the difference between an on-prem exchange server and M365's yeah. code base? My question is as well. Like, I'm I sure that there's some overlap. I, I, yep. To me, I would, I would suspect the biggest difference is Microsoft managing the infrastructure versus, you know, an, a, an IT department yeah. managing it. I, I, we see this all the time. Day in exchange, why would it be any different? Exactly. Yep. Well, look, look at look at Kaseya as an example from last year, right? They had the same vulnerability in their cloud platform, but they were able to shut it down and, and mitigate it right away. Whereas there was a a slowdown and a lag from the people who were trying to manage it. You know, whether it was uh, you know further behind and unpatched, you know, for you know other issues down the road, but they were able to get the cloud infrastructure corrected pretty quickly. I mean, they still took it down uh, as a precaution, but you know, I don't know if that's maybe a similar issue here. I mean, the, the only thing I'll give you is that I would guarantee that Microsoft has more people on the front lines monitoring like things like massive brute force password attacks, things mm -hmm. like that. And they'll shut it down and they'll shut that traffic down and they have the ability to do so where most businesses don't have that ability. Right? They're not going to have the ability to sit there and monitor and shut down traffic. And Microsoft has a lot more control over Internet servers that route traffic than any business will. I mean, you know, very few businesses have that capability and leverage. So that's the one thing I'll say, okay, that I'll give them that they're probably safer from that standpoint, but I'm just trying to think this through logically and say, well, if an exchange server has a vulnerability and they don't know how to patch it and it is a zero day, how does that not exist over here as well? Yeah, that's a huge concern I have too, as well, man. Um, how yeah. much of that code is shared? You know, are they using um, libraries for certain functions that are shared? Did they rewrite the code? And I, I don't, for me, it gives me no relief at all to think Microsoft's handling the infrastructure. If those vulnerabilities are there um, in their code, and they're handling the infrastructure, that gives me no relief at all. Like, I mean, they're going to figure out a way around Microsoft's infrastructure. Um, so I don't know, man. So just to kind of give people, uh, illustrate what this what this looks like. In, in one incident in July of 2022, 
cyber criminals used a previously deployed web shell on a compromised exchange server. And that's just fancy for saying they put this like lightweight application in place to compromise the exchange server. And then they basically gave themselves admin privileges just simply by doing this simple thing. Um, the scary part about this is once this stuff is known, you don't have to be a very good criminal hacker. Like you need to be a really good criminal hacker to figure out there's a zero day. Right. But and let's say that's one percent of the world that can figure that out. Right. One percent of the of the cyber criminal community that can figure out how to how to exploit this. Once that's in the public, that other ninety nine percent can now use this to exploit. Right. They might not be smart enough to figure it out, but they can figure out how to use the tools to exploit what somebody else figured mm -hmm. out. And that's the dangerous part of cybersecurity and cyber criminals. So they ended up stealing 1.3 terabytes of data and encrypted the entire network. Um, and they basically took the threat actors one week to hijack the Active Directory admin account from when the web shell was uploaded. So they put this web shell on the exchange server and, it, and within a week they were able to basically take over the admin account for the network and then do whatever they wanted. Um, Anything else you guys want to add to this? I mean, Just it's pretty to add to that, Brian, a little bit. So, so that's, that's the vulnerabilities that we're aware of. Right. For every vulnerability that we're aware of, there's probably 10 more that those hackers are holding on to and keeping quiet about, uh, keeping to themselves and waiting for the right moment to use them. Because as soon as they start using them, that's when people can start seeing, you know, how are they, how are they exploiting this and figuring out what that vulnerability is to patch it. Um, so those un, undisclosed vulnerabilities that haven't been used in the wild yet, are super valuable in that community. Yeah, because the article even points out that the exchange servers were likely hacked using an undisclosed zero day, given that the victims received technical support from Microsoft to deploy quarterly security patches after a previous compromise from December of 2021. So this company was compromised in December of 2021. They got help from Microsoft to deploy patches. And then in July 2022, six months later, Seven mm -hmm. months later, they got hit again. And if you look at the timeline here, those patches were released around May. So Microsoft helped them in May get their Exchange server patch. So technically, they were no longer vulnerable. And then something happened in July. So these guys have a, have a zero day on their hands that Microsoft has has no clue about i'm sure they're doing backwards forensics and reverse engineering to figure out what it is now that they know this um but yeah i mean i guess the moral of the story here for me guys is uh don't anything that you have connected like number one if you're a business person a ceo is as as minute and as this is going to sound in terms of details you should fully understand every device that you have that's facing the internet. Like you should know what they are. Because the reason I point this out is because there's so many times that I hear that companies didn't realize that somebody opened up like a remote desktop port, you know, so somebody could remote into their computer because they were working from home or they, you know, wanted remote access or they were going on vacation. Um, and you're like, you know, and I know a lot of people, Listening to this right now, probably you're like, well, that's stupid. Like, who would do that? Like, we know not to open RDP up to the Internet. It still happens all the time because mm -hmm. um, people think, oh, I won't get attacked if I do this for even like just, you know, the two weeks while I'm away. Um, it happens all the time. And people need to understand, like, what in the world they have have connected to the rest of the world so they know what their threat is. So somebody should be telling the CEO on a quarterly basis, here are all the things that are facing the internet from your IP address or from your offices. Um, and going over with the uh, CEO, not just the IT director. So the CEO knows like this is his risk. This is what he has out there. Here's how he could potentially uh, be hacked. So um we have a couple questions. I don't know if you guys are ready for questions yet. Wow. Um, yeah. so. Questions are fun. 
We'll keep this one here because Stephen wants to know at this point, are there any advantages to using an on-site exchange server over the cloud? I mean, what there used to be was that you pay one price for the license and you can have, you know, hundreds of mailboxes and not incur a bunch of extra cost. Whereas the cloud, you know, you're going to get charged per, per user, basically. So that was an advantage. Um, but times have changed. So I think we're all going to shake our heads and say, um, we don't see it. I mean, what do you guys think? I can't think of any advantage. Yeah. yeah. And even to migrate from Exchange Server, there's tons of tools and services to move mailboxes, calendars. You know, there was always that, like, what happens if I transfer things? Am I going to lose things? But nowadays, it's, I mean, it's automated. I, I think a lot of people... Um, tend to fall back on the, you know, if it's on premises, then it's in my control and I, and, and I can handle it. I don't trust Microsoft. So kind of, kind of like uh, what, what Randy was saying, but at the same time, look at the data. I mean, when these types of things happen and, and there's a cloud environment and on-premise environment, pretty much every time it's that on-premises environment that has been uh, most impacted because as much as you think you can keep up with these things, you know, depending on the size of your organization, um, you probably can't. Or you probably aren't. Yeah, I, I would just, I agree with all that. And I would just add that, you know, if you think you're saving money by doing this internally, hopefully the things that we've described today at least make you realize that you have risk. And with that risk could come a bigger price tag um, yeah, exactly. on the other side of it. So you're not really saving any money. And the other thing is, to secure this stuff and monitor this stuff and have things in place so you know that you're not under attack from on your exchange server requires just more than one IT person running that mm -hmm. server. Um, you know, you probably want to have like a security operations center um, that's monitoring that thing 24 seven. So they can detect things like when somebody puts a shell on your, on your exchange server. That's one of the things I'll point out with this article. Had they had a security operations center in place, somebody would have detected that got put on there when it got put on there. And they wouldn't have had a week to take over an Active Directory account and get admin access. So, um, you know, the more things that you're going to do, do to have in-house, in my opinion, the way you got to look at it is the more things you have to do yourself around security if you don't have a security operations center in place and you're running any type of server in your business, you have massive risk in your business. That's that's my opinion. So, yeah, um, I mean, you mentioned the cost savings versus the risk. Like literally, um, I quote your granddad, Brian, like literally every day, the cheap man pays the most. Expensive. And, expensive. And, yeah. What's that? Am I not quoting it cheap right? Cheap man spends the most. Oh, yeah. Cheap man spends the most. And that's the truth here, man. If you're trying to do the exchange server to save money, it's going to end up costing you so much more money in the long run. Like, like right now, we need to run away from this as fast as we can. All right. So we got a bunch of questions here, guys. Um, thank you for everyone for throwing these in here and, and, and giving us more stuff to talk about. But um, – what is the first step in mitigating a zero day attack? Interesting, because I'm sure we probably have four different opinions on this or we can get four different points of view. Ryan, what do you think? Getting an expert involved in incident response. I mean, if, if you're already in the midst of a zero day attack, um, you know, if you're not trained in this stuff, don't don't assume that you can get in there and fix it yourself. You need to get the experts in, involved right away. Um, you know, find somebody, uh, you know, or better yet, have somebody on standby before a, an attack that you can reach out and contact right away uh, who's experienced in this and can jump in and, and do what needs to be done. I would say for, for, from an IT perspective, from a cybersecurity perspective, live your life like you are in the middle of a zero day attack. And if you will do that, then you will, you will segment everything. You'll put passwords over here and you know multi-factor codes over here and this guest network segmented from that guest ne network that way when there is a zero day attack on one of the sections of your business you have it so segmented they can't just get in there and run freely and get into everything 
that so that's what I would say is you know start off by living your life like assuming that they're already in your network. Yeah. And for me, so with a zero day attack, there's nothing you can do about it because that it's out of your control, but you can certainly have tools in place to help detect and prevent it. So for me, detect and prevent would be the, the things that you need to have in place prior to so that you can be aware or something can ring a bell to say, hey, something is weird going on here. Yep. And just like, I'm going to go back to what I said. Uh, and that's just approach everything with kind of like what Randy said with the zero trust mindset that you got, you can't look at things as like, I can just put something out on the internet and it doesn't matter who can see it, who can get to it. Um, it matters now. Um, there's too many tools out there where hackers can find you. Um, you know, yes, there's millions and millions of IP addresses out there, but there are tools and bots that can scan these IP addresses and quickly, you know, report back to somebody, this is what's behind this IP address, or this is what's on this IP address. Um, and you just have to look at things from a standpoint of what are we exposing these devices to? And, you know, how do we make sure that, you know, you protect them, right? And that's, you know, talking about publicly facing things, you know, we also have to deal with, you know, zero day vulnerabilities inside your network too, right? So, my first, my my actual answer to his question is, or, or her question, I think it's a girl, yeah. So um, is you, you got to, number one, pick a framework because as we say on the show all the time, this is all layers. Like you have to do this in layers. There's not one thing that you can do. So I would say holistically understand a cybersecurity framework and start understanding the different components and different layers and different controls and start understanding where you need to get better at. And then as, as you um, are able to reach like almost full compliance with a certain framework, then you're really going to be in a position where you're protected from zero day attacks. And, 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 you know, we're, we're just not there yet with most people, in my opinion, I think we have a long way to go before people really understand what these frameworks are. Uh, I'm going to skip, let me see. Uh, I think the next two questions are kind of related. So I'm going to hold those off till the end. Um, we only have about, you know, eight, 10 minutes left. So wow. um, go ahead. No, I'm saying, wow, what time flew. Yeah. So there's a couple of things here um, and I want to move through them quickly. We have, we, we, we mentioned on, I believe last week's show about that um, the ability for cyber criminals to basically evade your endpoint protection. Um, because the endpoint protection is what a lot of people think is protecting them from things like ransomware. That's, you know, today's term for antivirus, if you don't know what endpoint protection is or means. Um, and hackers are basically able to circumvent any detection by doing what's basically a, a driver-based um, malware, driver-based attack. And it's designed to... Um, you know, there's really no difference between what I'm hearing in this now and what was basically called a rootkit back in the day, right? Rootkits just basically took vulnerabilities and legitimate drivers on Windows systems and used them to make their malware function. It's the same kind of thing that's going on here because what they what what the cat and mouse game is, is cyber criminals figured out that the EDRs trust all these things so we can just use them in the same way that rick rootkits were used back 10 15 years ago so um intel you know came out with a confirmation that their adler lake bio source code was stolen and what is stolen is they're admitting it's theirs uh, adler lake is the current um uh version generation uh of hardware that's out there right now for intel chips um so similar to talking about these driver issues, why does this matter that this code is now out in the wild? Huh. I mean, yeah, I don't mean to jump right. in and be first uh, right. twice in a row, but um, it, it matters. Anytime source codes leaked to the wild, it is a major, major travesty. Um, because if it's, if it's secret and now someone knows it out there, this guy's leaked it all over everywhere. They're going to pour through it. They're going to find vulnerabilities. 
and probably by the end of this week, there'll be vulnerabilities that'll be written um, for uh, that source code. And, and for something like this too, the, you know, the concern is, you know, is this a vulnerability or, or do they discover a vulnerability uh, that can be patched with, with a firmware update? Or is this a vulnerability that is so ingrained into the hardware itself that there's no, go, no going back? And it, Intel has a history of this. There was, uh, you know, vulnerabilities that were found in, uh, you know, a lot of their, their chips going back that just, you know, it was, it was a vulnerability that they ne never even thought of or comprehended being and, exploited. And then they had generations of chips that had that vulnerability that you couldn't go back. Yeah. And you have to think this is BIOS. So um, the, the operating Can't get any closer. <laughs> yeah. The operating right. system has a root. Well, mm -hmm. the BIOS is basically root of root. I mean, if you control the BIOS, you can do anything you want basically on, on that machine. I mean, we dealt with a with an attack like almost 10 years ago that they they used the BIOS to basically insert themselves. And then no matter what you did, you could even wipe the machine and they could come right back. It's one of the this is the kind of attack that led to now all the BIOSes are encrypted. It's harder to get into them, blah, blah, blah. This is going to open up all kinds of can of worms like that. On top of the fact, too, that there may be some generational things in there where it, it doesn't just impact that particular generation of chip. There may have been some stuff that they are able to glean from this uh, that affects previous generations of chips, too, because that architecture, you know, goes yeah. through and doesn't get replaced every time. Yeah. And in case anyone's not aware, they they change generations roughly every eight, nine months, usually. So, um, you know, and we're in Gen 11, 12 now. Well, yeah. 12 families. There's probably a lot of reused code because we all know it's easier to reuse code than write yeah. it off from scratch every time. Andre, what were you going to say? Yeah, I was going to say um, this isn't even a headache only for Intel. They, there's also finding um, integrations with Lenovo's um, secure suite services, their cloud services. So this is something now Lenovo has to like think, okay, can they get in through my avenue now? Mm -hmm. Yep, 100%. That they, all these issues where we see hardware vendors and software vendors where their code gets breached, then we have to be concerned with cyber, uh, supply chain attacks like we did with SolarWinds and, you know, Kaseya and all those. So, so now we have, uh, guys, we've talked about ransomware as a service, right? Where, you know, we kind of like highlighted the fact that these cyber criminals are, are specializing in, you know, getting into your network, you know, and then, then there's guys that specialize in deploying the ransomware and, handling the negotiations and it's all handled by different companies if you would um and now we're seeing uh phishing as a service and this caffeine service lets anyone launch a massive scaled microsoft 365 phishing attack so what the hell is this i mean and and why isn't this something that we can shut down very quickly all right well I didn't want to be the first to jump out again, um, but it's it's it goes back to it's not literally it's like the ransomware as a service. Um, ransomware as a service is you don't have to be an expert. You just pay for the service. They do the heavy lifting. Um, this is basically phishing as a service. Um, the crazy thing, most of these things target the West, if you will, you know, United States, Europe. This one is targeting these these phishing attacks that you can pay for, they have like a basic and a pro and a premium plan um, actually target Russia and Chinese um, uh, addresses. So that's also very interesting. Um, but just the whole idea of a phishing as a service where they can just pay a certain amount a month, all the heavy lifting's done. All you have to do is, is be evil and then have the money and then boom, they do everything else for you. Um, quite a development. Yeah, it's, it's constant contact for cyber criminals. <laughs> They've got tiered subscri subscription plans. I mean, these these uh, the screenshots just look like ordering any other piece of software. The other scary thing is, is like these guys are literally set up to like evade everything. Yep. You know what yep. I mean? Like they're going to keep the email flowing. So they have different things set up. So, you know, they can't be shut down by IP address. They probably already have like phishing email templates like, hey, these are the most popular ones that are working and getting people to click on. And they're literally able to go in and just pull in a template to trick you and get you to click on something. And this is I mean, why I guess why we're talking about this and why this is so important, because 
what it used to take to set something like this up at this level was very, very difficult. Yep. Now it's as easy as going up and signing up for a MailChimp account. They built it to scale. Yeah, <laughs> they did. And some of the features of the service, the one that caught my attention the most is um, IP block listing, right. um, which allows you, it allows the attackers, you can block out um, certain people, you can block out geocodes, um, and that can really help you evade detection um, when people are looking into how this happened. Um, we mentioned that um, on a um, one of our podcasts, I think it was a couple months ago, how there was a whole service that was doing this, and you know you could actually allow list uh, people that had clicked on a link, and then everybody else was block list. So it was allow list only into the the phishing thing this seems to have some features very similar to that so it's looking pretty sophisticated yeah but i mean to me this is something that the authorities should be able to shut down very quickly i i mean you know to figure out where this is all coming from and just kill it you know and you know maybe kill their website five or six times and then it's just like all right this is just not worth it so Hopefully, um, but we'll see. It depends where they're operating out of and how good the local authorities will cooperate. So it seems like Russian uh, hackers uh, decided to set their sights on some U.S. airport websites recently. We'll talk about this briefly, and then we'll kind of wrap up with these three or four questions that I have left over. They're kind of all related. Mm -hmm. Um, But you guys kind of said this is a little bit of a nothing burger. And as we're going through the show, I'm kind of thinking, well, it's kind of not. Um, yes, it is a nothing burger in the sense that like, you know, there was no ransomware deployed. Um, it basically, you know, what it had amounted to at the end of the day was their websites were down for a little while. Right? Maybe overblown is a, is a better word. I mean, so, some of the ways uh, the, the, the media outlets were, were talking about this made it look like there was a, a huge attack coming from Russia on, on American airlines right. but you know it's really just the the websites but you know it is it's still serious but it, it's serious in the sense that number one what they did was they did a denial of service attack which basically means they send a bunch of web traffic towards your servers and it overloads them and then they can't load web pages um a couple of things that come to mind with that a lot of times ddos attacks are um kind of like you know um the, the tail wagging the dog type of thing where they're actually doing something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just, you know, get, get everyone's attention over yep. on the DDoS attack while they're doing something else. You know, I, I would imagine that a lot of people use airport websites to, you know, learn if flights are, I'm sure that you can link to flight. Del- like I know in the, the Philadelphia website, uh, PHL, you can see all the flight statuses from their website. You don't have to go, you know, anywhere else. Um, and obviously, if you want to find parking or you want to know how to pick somebody up at that airport, you're probably going to these websites. My concern is, is that, you know, they have done this. Can they, you know, yep. wh- where do you need to be concerned, especially as a business owner? When you have a publicly facing website, it's not out of the question that they use your website to deploy malware. Right. If they can if they can, you know, embed some kind of code in there that then loads up you know, an ad or something that somebody clicks on that then, you know, causes the visitors of those websites to have a problem with adware or malware. That's the concern here. Like you, you need to have cybersecurity on your website. You just can't have some web designer throw, throw up a website and never think about the security side of things. A lot of times businesses just focus on updating their website or getting, you know, information on the blog but they don't think about securing from a standpoint of who's updating the website on the back end to make sure there's no you know, vulnerabilities and things like that. And then who's monitoring that website to make sure there's nothing malicious in the code that could potentially be infecting somebody else. The concern for you is as a business owner, you can get sued if that happens, right? If I get malware or ransomware from your website or click on something on your website that causes me to have a bad day, I might be calling my lawyer saying, hey, I went to this website and got this and mm-hmm. how many other people were involved. And now you're dealing with a class action lawsuit. So that's where my head goes when I see this stuff. I don't know if you guys want to spend a couple minutes throwing your opinions in. Yeah, I think definitely they were showing their cards that, you know, hey, we are capable of doing this. And, 
you know, what, what do terrorist organizations want to do? They want to cause fear. So this was just something where the headlines were going and it's kind of like, you know, everybody's thinking, oh my gosh, are the, you know, if they can get this, what else can they do within the airport and, and the airplanes? Right. Yeah. I mean, you made some, y'all both made some great points. I mean, there is some concern. Is this, is this, uh, you know, hey, look over here while we are actually getting into your real network and we're going to make planes hit each other or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um but this whole uh, denial of service, I know it's been known for quite a while that that there are several huge botnets that are based basically or led by, you know, Russian or Russian influenced states. Um, they brought down several, you know, websites of of governments that have been involved in issues with them over the last, you know, five, 10 years. So. You know, most likely it's a psyop, like what Reggie w- was just talking about. I mean, what Andre was saying. Um, you know that basically, um, you know, it gets in your head, and you're mm-hmm. like, "Oh wow, they brought them all down." It makes the headlines. What else can they do to us? That's what I'm leaning towards. Mine's good. Agreed. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess the moral of the show today is is like, pay attention to your publicly facing things, your devices, your exchange, your websites, like this stuff matters as well. Um, I, I guarantee you that more than 60, 70% of the businesses out there don't even think twice that their website could become a, a point of attack for, you know, a, a cyber criminal. So good stuff, guys. Thanks for all the input. Let's wrap up with, uh, we got three more questions here. They're kind of along the same lines. Um, so Eric asks, are there any tips for non-tech people to protect themselves from hackers? Uh, and then behind that, similarly, is there a good checklist to help the average individual get themselves protected who don't really understand what the potential dangers are out there? Um, similar type question. So you guys want to take a shot at this? I mean, I think the the ideal answer is is you probably want to engage with somebody who knows this stuff. Um, I mean, there there are some things um, you know within IT support that I think definitely can fall under a, a DIY type category uh, where you can get away with doing some stuff yourself. Um, I think cybersecurity is a completely different ballgame. I mean, e- even the people that are in this field are constantly learning and, and having to keep up with things on a daily basis. I mean, the, the the cybersecurity world today is different than it was six months ago, different than it was two years ago. So it's, it's something you really have to constantly keep up with um, and having layers. I mean, if there was you know, that one thing, you know, which you know, we've talked about is not a, not a silver bullet. It's not an easy button, you know, make sure you have MFA on everything possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but my real advice is, you know, you, you need to engage with, with an expert to, to keep track of this stuff. This stuff happens you know, every single day. That actually brings up a great point, right? There, we could spend a whole show talking about how individuals can protect yeah. themselves. And actually that'll, you know, we can do that. Mm-hmm. We might have a guest on next week. I don't know. Um, if we don't, we could cover that like from an individual standpoint. Because individuals um, are tricky. I mean, there's there's not yes. that many resources out there for them, unfortunately. Well, like I look at somebody like Julie, right? And mm-hmm. I don't know Julie that well. Um, but I got to feel like this person is not getting trained in their workplace for this stuff if they're asking this type of question because that's where I would start. I would start with you should be getting security and awareness training, right? And if you're not getting it at work, you you know, sorry, um, shameless plug here, but watch our podcast, right? Because we're telling you every single week what you need to do to protect yourself at both a business level, high level, and then down to the individual level. Um, individuals need to be aware of phishing, smishing, which is text message, uh, you know, phishing attacks. Um, how things can come in through social media. Like you need to understand like how you could potentially be attacked by a cyber criminal. And there's a lot of different ways. Um, And then like when you get these text messages, when you get these phishing emails, what do you do with them? How do you respond to them? How do you know if it's legitimately from your friend or not? Um, That's what security and awareness training will get you. It'll get you smart on this stuff, but so will listening to this podcast. I mean, we, been, we've been doing this for at least two years, right, Andre? I mean, we have two years of every single week of coming to you with tips and, and things that you need to do. So 
share our podcast, get the word out. And, and we're, this is why we do this podcast ex exactly for people like Julie. So that they understand the risks of, of what cyber criminals are doing out there. Well, and I also think where she's coming from is your average individual. That's not on a company owned device at a company getting right. full stack cybersecurity, getting training from a company. And, you know, it's really, it's a really big hole right now. This whole, you know, sometimes I call it residential cybersecurity, but this whole market out there, they're, they're somewhat protected just because they're like behind a small wall in a war. You know, an individual, you're not going to get $10 million from if you hack them, maybe 500. So the criminals are going where the money is. But as that gets harder and harder, you're going to see them, you're going to see more automation um, more ransomware as a service, phishing as a service, and it's going to move down towards those those basically targets where they can get five hundred dollars or a thousand dollars, and it's a huge need um, right now. Um, somebody listens to our podcast needs to start a residential cybersecurity company where you just charge a certain amount, of, you know, and it's all automated, so you can make money and then they can stay safe. Not me. <laughs> but the bigger the bigger concern for me is is like I just I I've I've young kids and you know I'm very vocal that my kids will not have devices until they're well into their teens because I look at these devices as as no different than putting a kid behind a car. You have to train kids on these cyber risks as well. I know too many kids that have phones that are in elementary school, middle school, high school, and they get one of these text messages and they, they just click on it because they're curious. Like, you know, what happens if I do this? And boom, their phone's bricked. They have ransomware. Um, and that's the concern that I have is that like we're not educating the adults who are giving these devices to the kids. And now we have a whole slew of kids that are going to have to be retrained on these devices when they get in the corporate world or when they get older and they actually have things like credit scores to worry about or bank accounts with money in them. Um, that's where this starts to become a problem because technology use is so ingrained in you to do it a certain way for a decade before you get to that age. If you're giving your kid a device at eight years old, and then by the time they're 18, they have horrible cyber hygiene. They're going to get hacked. And that's where we're getting to. And then we're going to have a whole, you know, we're as cyber defenders, when they get jobs and they go in the corporate world, we got to unwind 10 years of, of all of that. So that's, you know, that's another piece of this because we haven't had to unwind bad cyber hygiene from a lot of the people that we're dealing with today just because of their age and how long technology has been in their lives. Um, we're starting to get to the group of people where technology has always been in their lives. So, all right. So last one, we'll spend like 30 seconds on it. How do I know if I'm under attack as a non-tech person? Is there a first sign that we should notice before it gets worse? I mean, I, I would just say, as a rule, never trust, always verify. So always be on the lookout for things that that may not be what they see. Wow. And I, oh, go ahead. Yeah. So how do I know if I'm under attack? Typically, if your computer's acting a little differently, you're trying to open up a Word document and all you're seeing is uh, X's and O's, then that could be some type of sign. Or if you just get a follow a notepad that says, you know, read me ransomware. That's also your indication that you have an issue. Yeah. Weird stuff going on with your computer. Also maybe um, an, an, an exponential growth in like messages or um, uh, SMS messages uh, coming your way. Um, also people replying back to you like, Hey, why'd you send me that message? And you know, you didn't send it and you look in your sent mailbox and nothing's there. Which, by the way, if you do get a message like that, I think that you should, like it's a, a message from a friend that's obviously malicious, pick up the phone and call them. If you reply back, there's going to be some kind of filter in there. It's going to make your email deleted. Um, so pick up the phone and call that person um, and let them know what's uh, going on. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and I'll just add to that. Weird stuff with your computer, weird stuff with your email. So I would say check your send items folder. 
make sure you don't have any weird messages in there that maybe you didn't send. That's an indicator of, of, of business email compromise or email compromise. And then look at your rules in, in your email. Make sure you don't have any weird rules that are set up to delete certain emails or forward them to a different place. Um, business email compromise is, is a pretty big deal. Um, when it comes to that, and that's usually a precursor to something like a ransomware attack, you're going to know when you have a ransomware attack. They're not hiding that. They're, they're coming right out and telling you that, that, that they got you. And plus, you won't be able to open any files on your computer. So hope that helped, Chelsea. Thanks, everyone. Great show. Um, hour. Wow. Um, hope everybody got a lot out of this. And we'll see you next week. Take care, everyone. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. Sorry, Ryan.